Welcome to The Real Photo Show, sponsored by the School of Visual Arts MFA Photo, Video, and Related Media Program, chaired by Charles Traub. Today's episode is a recording from the Latinx Photo Symposium event at the School of Visual Arts. The Real Photo Show was part of the early planning for the show, and it was organized by Liz Zito, with discussions led by MFA grads Jordan Cruz and Carla Maldonado. The discussion was moderated by El Museo del Barrio curator Susana V. Temkin, and the guests were artist Veronica Sanchez-Bencamo of Fotofeminas, who was a previous guest of the show, and the acclaimed artist Perla de Leon. So now let me read a little copy so I make sure I get all of the names and sponsors correct. The SVA MFA Photography, Video, and Related Media in collaboration with El Museo de Barrio, presents the final program in the Scheinflug Lecture Series of the Spring 2019 semester entitled The Culture of Community, a Latinx Photo Symposium. And this was also the last event in the 30th anniversary series as well. The Culture of Community, a Latinx Photo Symposium, could not be possible without the generous support of Adorama and Graham Art, as well as the collaborative efforts of Charles Traub, me, Michael Chovendolton, Liz Zito, Jordan Cruz, Carla Maldonado, Susanna V. Temkin, and El Museo del Barrio. This symposium will discuss issues of representation in academic and cultural institutions, as well as current and future trends with the reclamation and modernization of the photo archive on social media and web-based platforms. So this was recorded live during the event, as with all live events, there's random noises and sirens, and uh, we had some issues with some wobbly-sounding microphones, and you'll hear a little bit of that knocking and clicking as we go along, but it, uh, it's mostly just at the beginning. Charles Traub will kick off the event, and then he will hand off to Liz Zito, who will hand off to Jordan Cruz and Carla Maldonado. Uh, so just a reminder of the names, Susanna Temkin will be moderating, and then you'll hear from Veronica Sanchez-Bencamo and Perla de Leon. And I'll interject early on in the episode just to remind you who's speaking. There were also some presentations that I edited out of the episode because they just didn't make sense in audio form. All right, everyone, enjoy the show. Thanks for listening, and we will talk soon. photo show. This event was seeded by him and actually suggested by him to our department, photography, video, and related media, I think almost two years ago. And uh, finally we have it happening on the end of our 30th anniversary events, which is quite great. I see a lot of faces here I don't know, so I welcome you here. I'm Charles Traub. I'm the what am I? The chairman of this department, <laughs> the founder of it, and I'm happy to welcome all of you here. This is the end of the semester, the last event of our 30th year. And I am now going to turn this over to Carla, Jordan, and Liz. So I'm actually, I'm the coordinator of special projects here. Um, I do a lot of the event programming. Um, Charles and I work together. This is a very special event, um, so I wanted to explain a little bit about how it came 
about. In the fall of 2017 was my first semester working here. And around that time, we all remember um, Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, which started a lot of conversations in this department about what we could do to help in this horrible situation. And that's how Jordan and I became connected. And we uh, actually came up with a fundraiser and um, made a couple thousand dollars to send to United Hands. And the conversation quickly continued uh, with a political election in Brazil that Carla was very passionate about um, based on the compromised nature of the outcome, um, compromising the Amazon rainforest. So these topics became conversations between us and around the department and Charles introduced us to Michael Chauvin Dalton, who had recently interviewed Veronica for his podcast, Photo Feminas, and we thought that the work that she was doing in bringing Latin American females together as photographers um, was exactly kind of the community that our students were looking for as they are trying to achieve their goals in uh, social action. From there, uh, we got a lot of generous funding from Adorama, which is um, completely funded this entire event. They've been amazing to work with, so I wanted to do a shout out to them. After getting in touch with Adorama, Jordan wrote and Carla worked on a proposal, researched Susana's work at El Naseo de Barrio. We started a conversation with Susana, who introduced us to Perla, and here we are today. The reason why I mention all of this is because I wanna just promote conversations, listening, talking, and this culture of community, this is hopefully a start of something, an event here that we can continue doing. And without further ado, I will go to my seat and listen to these wonderful women and um, hopefully learn a lot. And I really appreciate you guys all coming out to this. It's really special to us. Hello, everyone. My name is Jordan Cruz, and I would like to start off by welcoming you all to the MFA Photography, Video, and Related Media program at the School of Visual Arts. Hi, I'm Carla Maldonado. I'm from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and together with this skillful team of strong ladies, I'm proud to present Culture of Community, a Latinx Photo Symposium that was curated, developed, and organized by women that are interested in the Latin culture and its representation. So tonight's event is part of the Schleimflug Lecture Series. These, are, these events are meant to bring together an assortment of cultural interlocutors, new and fresh voices, and ultimately engage a new vision of community. Now, while attending similar events here at SVA, my classmate and co-organizer, Carla, and I noticed that there was a huge gap in programming related to the art histories of people of color, particularly Latinx art histories. And when speaking specifically about photography, art schools tend to teach and reinforce a canon of photography that is primarily controlled by cisgendered white men. These histories are celebrated and as a result completely overlook the world, a world, an art world specifically, whose knowledge and foundation of art spans thousands and thousands of years before. Even for myself, born and raised in Brazil, before starting to put this panel together, it was hard to name a handful of Latin American artists that I could look up to. Um, one of the classes I attended here in school, Charles Traub asked me to list a name of Brazilian photographers that influenced me and him and the classmates should know about, and for that I'm very thankful. However, it is easy to find photographic representation of my culture, but to understand what's the female's role in this representation is much more complex. 
Since then, I started to realize that, yes, this is a white cisgendered male's world, but the women out there are trying to change the game and they're not apologetic about making work. And that's why this conversation is so important to inform me and inspire me and Latin American women like us how important um, we are. So, I, think. <laughs> I think, I don't know, maybe, we'll see. So in conjunction with other Latinx students across the country, Carla and I wanted to do our part in changing the conversations related to photographic curriculums being taught in schools like SVA um, to include a more diverse collection of image makers. And so we came together with the generous support of this department, special thank you to Lizito, who constantly <clears throat> fought for us every step of the way, to create what, is, what will be the beginning of a more inclusive dialogue about contemporary art history. We did this by asking some of the leading female voices of photography uh, to come here and discuss the photographic archive and also to pose ways of navigating this cultural landscape of institutional biases that exist in the art world. So with that being said, I would like to introduce Susanna Temkin, who will moderate this panel tonight. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Jordan, Carla, and I also want to thank um, Liz and Charles. I also, I began this conversation about joining this panel last year, and we were talking earlier about how surprised we were that the date is here, so I'm glad that you could all, you could all join us. So one of the reasons, too, that I find it really interesting that I'm here, uh, I'm not a photography specialist, I'm the curator uh, at El Museo del Barrio, but El Museo del Barrio, we're also celebrating an anniversary year. Um, it's our 50th anniversary, uh, and we've been partnering with a number of other institutions who are also having anniversaries, so this is a, a perfect fit for me to be in. Um, and one of the things that I'm doing in my role as curator in this anniversary year is looking through our archives, and I've been finding a lot of really interesting uh, moments in which El Museo has engaged with contemporary photographers, contemporary photographers of the time and continuing forward. I'm also working on an archival project, which I'm going to mention in just a moment. But that's where you will see above my name this really fascinating logo. This was a logo that El Museo used for almost 20 years I hope you come visit us. We're located at 104th Street and 5th Avenue. And if you go, you'll notice that we have um, a number of windows on the facade. But this logo is special because it was adapted specifically um, for photography exhibitions. And El Museo, in fact, used to have a gallery dedicated to photographic shows called the F-Stop Gallery. I'm sorry to say we don't have that now. Um, today, all of our media are more integrated within the, the gallery space. But this logo, I think, was a perfect way to, to start my introductions today. So when you come to El Museo today, again, for the 50th anniversary, we have an exhibition up right now called Culture and the People. El Museo del Barrio, 1969 to 2019. Um, and I'm really proud to say that we have a number of women, Latin American, Latinx photographers in the show, including Perla de Leon. And you can see how we've presented it on the wall uh, within Culture and the People. You'll also see, again, other photographers, but I was reviewing the collection today, and while I think we have a lot farther to go, this is a selection of other Latin American photographers represented in our collection. Uh, part of the reason that I, when we began speaking together, wanted to invite Perla de Leon is because, coincidentally, Perla had just sent me 
this amazing invitation from an exhibition that she had been in in 1980 called Mujeres Nueve, featuring all female photography um, artists in the show, curated by a woman curator. I should say that El Museo has a really amazing history of female curators and directors that I'm proud to be a part of. Uh, so I thought that this might be a good place for us to start today looking back into historical archives, seeing how we can pull out voices of women Latin American photographers that have been exhibited in the not so distant past, and then how we can bridge that into the future with some of the digital um, media and portals that Veronica is going to show us with. So um, speak to you soon during the question and answer session. Okay, so this is Veronica Sanchez-Benkamo of Fotofeminas. Thank you, everyone, for coming. And I really would like to thank Liz. It's been amazing. We've been corresponding, <laughs> like, for a year. <laughs> so I really, really appreciate I live in Hong Kong. So, you know, it's, it's a long way to make it here, and I truly appreciate it. And thanks, everyone, for coming as well. I was sort of thinking like maybe I should begin like giving a very brief introduction. How did I begin photo feminist? So I'm from Venezuela and I moved to UK um, 15 years ago in 2004. And I began college, like the foundation of photography in, in Brighton. And one of the things that from the very start that I noticed while I was living in England was that everything related to Latin America in terms of photography was always very negative. It was either like very political or um, gangsters and death and, and that sort of like trigger kind of questions in my mind. Um, and then I continued to study photojournalism uh, in Wales and I sort of like continue seeing these sort of like negative um, images from Latin America. It was also very difficult to find work done by women, not only from Latin America, but like in general. I mean, back then, um, digital archives wasn't like great. Like I would go on Magnum website. Back then it was really rubbish. And <laughs> now it's much better. But anyway, and that's sort of like, I was kind of like questioning then, like, why is it so difficult? Why why can I not see, you know, works by women from the region that I come from? Um, so in my final year, um, it was my thesis year. So I decided to go to South America and do my external uh, in Chile with an NGO, just taking photographs. And that really had a major impact, like being there and um, just going to the museums in Santiago, I came across an exhibition by Violeta Parra, very well-known uh, Chilean artist, and it sort of kind of like inspired me how strong she was, and I mean, her lyrics are amazing, but also like all the artwork, like a lot of knitting, and um, that sort of like really inspired me. So when I went back to write my dissertation, I was sort of like, hmm, I want to write about this. I, I feel really inspired about Latin America. And so I decided to kind of focus like the differences on how photographers had focused in Mexico, like whether they were like 
Mexican photographers, women, or Westerners had, that had gone to Mexico. And I really enjoy working on that topic. And then I graduated <laughs> and I went out to the real world and I moved to London. It was, again, very difficult for me to sort of like find myself within what I was looking for. Of course, then I wasn't really sure what was the thing that I was looking for. So I ended up going to the Latin American House, which is a charity in, in London for Latin American and Caribbean people. And they do amazing work. Uh, they've been in London like for 50 years, just helping the community, um, just providing legal advice, teaching English. Um, and then I came just to provide photography in, in any way I could. And then the way I contributed with the charity was basically that I would research uh, Latin American photographers. Um, and I would interview them. So the section we call the 10 questions with. So every month I had a different photographer that I will interview. And pretty soon I realized like, it's really hard to find women photographers <laughs> um, online. And, and then just, I mean, it, it kind of happened by chance. I moved to New York in 2013. And then I was spending a lot of time in the library in ICP which had a major impact to be archiving at the library. Um, I think the biggest impact that I've had so far was working in the library. I came across just so much content, like either scanning or just imputing you know, data for the library. And that was the moment that I realized, wow, it is really, really hard to find content by Latin American female photographers. I think I need to respond to this thing that it's been in my mind for so long. So I just wanted to kind of give you an idea where I was coming from and then how photofeminist kind of happened. So this is our fifth year. So I began in, the first publication was uh, January 2015. So I just thought like, just to show you our website in case people are not familiar with our website, it's very basic website and the incentive was just to make it accessible, my research, and it was just essentially the idea to archive and that people could place different photographers from different regions, all women, um, working on different topics, some are more documentary, other conceptual, photojournalism, um, some at emerging stages, some well-recognized, uh, awarded. Um, it's just, I just wanted to sort of like share really what I was finding, um, to share my research, I guess. And then the way it works is just a um, monthly feature. So then basically you can see I archive um, every single one. Um, and it began with this like very small interview. So I was kind of like continuing what I was doing for the Latin American house. But then I sort of started finding my own style within the archival process, I guess. And then, I mean, there were important things like the retrospective is basically, I started reaching out to more senior photographers like Graciela Iturbide, Sara Facio, uh, and just having longer, interviews, which I don't, I don't really think they're interviews, they're more like conversations. 
I just wanted to understand more about the past and how it had been for those photographers, us women in Latin America. Uh, I was just very curious to understand why for me it had been so difficult to find other women. So pretty much from there, I went to Guatemala in 2015 and I met uh, Maria Cristina Uribe, who worked with Sara Facio, and they built the first Latin American uh, publishing company for photographers. And I couldn't believe that I had met her in Guatemala. I was like, oh my God, you know, like I, I met this woman. And I just had so many questions to ask her. And she just said, now it's so much easier. And I was like, wow. But of course, I cannot understand because I cannot live in the time that she lived. Uh, but I think she left a great legacy. Sadly, she passed away, but um, the mission is very specific. I mean, the goal was to create a website that could be accessible, that other curators or writers could find out about us, about what we want to say, whether our Latin women living in Latin America or living overseas as well, or maybe they were born outside Latin America, but they heritage is Latino and I am interested to find you know like what are the things that they are concerned or what are the questions that they have about their identity their Latino identity so the mission is very specific so so far we we've done I mean I say we because I feel like we are doing this together <laughs> I mean I've done about 55 features so it's once per month I have organized different exhibitions, sometimes at photo festivals, sometimes I've been invited to do exhibitions in universities like in Mexico, some other times we did fundraising in Peru. Um, it kind of varies the style, but I think it's very important to come out of the online restrictions. I think it's very important to be traveling and I also think it's very important that they're photographers, because they're all based in different countries, that somehow they're connected to this community. That is not just an online thing. I think, for me, that's very important. So I try to organize talks, projections, or somehow collaborations. We've done talks in Argentina, Ecuador, uh, Chile, uh, here in New York. This is the second time we're in New York in London as well, so, and I think that has helped us to knit together a community. The fact that we're so active, I think, or relatively active, not very active, but like relatively active. So, so these are the countries that I've been able to find female photographers and that I have featured in Photo Feminas. The one country that is really, really hard to find is Paraguay, if anyone has <laughs> any contacts, please email me. <laughs> it's really hard. I've tried. I've even tried through other people. Uh, it's really difficult to access um, photographers, women photographers in Paraguay. I don't know why. Um, they do have a photo fair there, but it's difficult to find a female photographer there. I don't know why, but... Um, I really would love to see work from there. So, later, so I moved to Hong Kong 
And I was determined to continue <laughs> for the feminists, even though I moved to the other part of the world. So what began in Hong Kong was for the feminist library, which I later um, named after Maria Cristina Oribe. So the library takes her name because when I launched the library, she passed away a week after. And I felt like since we had met in Guatemala in the first exhibition of Photofeminas and coincidentally she passed away a week after, I really felt like there was definitely a homage to pay for her. And this is my way. So the library, it's complete, completely runs on the basis of donations, uh, donations from the artists themselves, publishers, collectors uh, who wish to donate their photo books uh, to the library. The library doesn't have an address. So the library is with me. And I try to sort of promote it on the website by just showing the, the front cover. I do not make videos because I do respect copyrights. I don't want to give them away for the photographers, the designers of the publishers. I do provide the contact details if anyone wants to purchase, they can just literally scroll down and click directly to the photographer uh, personal website and they can make the arrangements. So I, I try to help that way. So this is the newest chapter of Photofeminas. So I, as I said, like I, I don't have an address for the library, but I want to make the library accessible to people. I want people to learn about the works that we are producing. And I had been attending different photo book fairs, uh, art book fairs in Asia, Taiwan, China, uh, and in Hong Kong. Um, and I was literally just setting up a table and my sign, my library sign, and just trying to just, just create, creating certain sort of bridge so people can access to this library. But then I felt I wanted to sort of like change the rules, like usually people go to a library, but then I decided I want the library to go to people. I want to be approaching people. So I now wear the library. <laughs> You'll see. I came across this quote when I was a librarian here in New York, and it resonated with me so much, and it stayed in my mind for so long. I didn't know what did I want to do with these words, but eventually they materialized into La Biblia Mobile and uh, Maria Cristina Oribe Library. So this is the first attempt to La Biblia Mobile. So um, it's only a month old. <laughs> so I, I have only shown it once in Hong Kong in a book fair. And I kind of wanted to play I think, well, I'm, I'm, do, I'm creating a performance, but I also wanted to play with the idea of our culture and Asian culture. I find in Hong Kong people are rather reserved, um, and Venezuelans, we're not reserved. <laughs> so, but I wanted to kind of find a way, like how can I make it comfortable but reachable? So I just thought that by wearing it, I could sort of like, break the ice and approach people uh, with the books and 
And I just thought like having this sort of like little window was also a way of kind of creating, um, I don't know, curiosity for the, for the viewer. Yeah, we just like walk around and, and, and ask, just tell people about my project, what, what is that I am doing. So thank you. <laughs> So now the microphone was handed to the artist Perla de Leon, who showed some work that she didn't want shared outside of the venue. So I've removed that part of the conversation. I just realized as an older woman, I should tell you a little, just a little bit of uh, my background where uh, when I began, uh, I studied uh, my MFA in photography at Brooklyn College, and I believe it was the first uh, MFA in photography in New York City. I don't know if it was the first class, but, but I was very excited. Um, I studied under Walter Rosenblum, who studied with Paul Strand. And I know he has a huge collection of Lewis Hine work. So a lot of, learned a lot of history um, from my professor. But I approached at one point Cornell Kappa, who was one of the founders of ICP, because I found that if you ever look up Gorilla Girls, you'll see that from 40 years ago till now, the percentage of women exhibiting in galleries and museums in New York City was 98.9 white men only, not even white women, so forget about the rest of us. And 40 years later, they're at Tate Museum and other museums, and the percentage is, I think, I forgot if it's like 5% uh, difference, which for 40 years, that's astounding. So. Cornell Cabot was grace, uh, graceful enough to co-curate an exhibition of Latin American photography. I don't know if it was the first. So I briefly was a curator, not because I'm trained as a curator in any way, but just out of desperation to see that none of my friends, no matter what training they had or what skills they had, as photographers, they were never exhibited. And that's how something like El Museo del Barrio was founded which is a museum across the street from the Museum of the City of New York, two lovely museums to go to if you have a time one afternoon, and the Studio Museum in Harlem, and dozens of galleries. I remember there was a tiny little gallery on 11th Street that I got to exhibit in, and we were just, we would find, because in the city back then, hard to believe, there was a lot of vacant storefronts, and we would convince that instead of having an ugly closed storefront, can we go in and do a little gallery for a weekend? And that was the way a lot of us had to exhibit because we just weren't included in any of the major galleries or museums. Just one thing I'd like to um, offer if you guys can go, the Metrograph Theater on Ludlow Street, they just extended another week of film that has some of this work, but is an extraordinary documentary. It's called Decade of Fire. It's been selling out a lot, so they extended it. If you get a chance, you should see it. Whether you're born in New York or, or came from somewhere else, to see how policies affected the entire New York City population uh, is extraordinary. So it's, it's really worth seeing if, if you can. And, uh, and look up Gorilla, Gorilla Girls when you get a chance. It's, this is kind of a work in progress, because I, I realize for large groups it's too much to read. So this is where Perla plays her video slideshow that she did not want published. 
These were children from a school, uh, PS61, and all of those photos you saw were surrounding their school. The children went to bed wearing sneakers, they would tell me, uh, because if a fire happened in the middle of the night, their parents wanted to know that they could run. Sad. Um, sorry, I just saw a feature of all of this. The, um, when New York City was going bankrupt in 1975, they decided to close firehouses only in black and Latino communities while they opened them in the suburbs and opened them in, in middle-class neighborhoods. It was the Rand Institute, which I remember had given false um, statistics about the Vietnam War in order to keep us there. They were the ones that did some computer analysis and decided these are the, uh, there's no such thing as community. If, you know, if there's no services, they'll move. But with redlining, there's no redlining. I don't know if any of you know about redlining, but they used to, the banks and insurance companies would put a red line around entire neighborhoods and say, no one can get a mortgage to move out. No one can get insurance for their home. And it was only uh, if you were a person of color. So I could say a lot more, but if you get to see the movie, it really explains it a lot better. And for me, it was I was given a CETA grant, similar to the WPA grants of the 1930s. And CETA photographers and painters, we went into communities that were un under lots of stress, and we did what we could. I taught pinhole photography, so the children would bring me the boxes that their sneakers were, were bought in, and we, we made cameras out of those. And so they would always tell me stories. And literally, it was 10 minutes from a, the most wealthy community here in Manhattan. So I always felt like I would get off the subway and I was entering a World War II movie. I grew up, I'm also a filmmaker, I grew up watching lots of old black and white movies and I'd go like, but this is like, where are the tanks? That's all we're missing. You know, this is such destruction and nobody, no one's coming. Where, where's, where's the, where are the heroes? You know, where's the army or the navy to come save these poor children? And amazingly enough, children are so resilient that I, I was at a screening last night at the movie and there were some people who, as little kids, grew up in the fires and they told me, we had fun in our community. We just played because we didn't know that everyone wasn't going, wasn't experiencing the same thing. So it's amazing and that's why my, I kind of focused on the children because they gave me some kind of hope. Hip hop was created from this destruction uh, in order to keep the kids from being in gangs, which was to protect their buildings, and with, with police selling drugs and, and no real police protection. Uh, the kids were teenagers that were like, you know, they really didn't know what they were doing, sadly. And these um, Afro-Caribbean musicians had this wonderful idea that let's let them battle in music. Let's do dance battles, and that's where you get the, the b-boy dancing. Let's do MC and DJ battles. And so gangs started to have truce, a truce about let's battle in music. And the salsa music, actually the bands were so popular and, and they, the, the, the musicians were very good at helping kids learn instruments, which nobody learns anymore, how to play you know, guitars or whatever. And they actually played in, um, in Yankee Stadium and 
they were the only ones that played besides the Beatles in Yankee Stadium and be able to fill it. So the, the explosion of creativity that these communities gave in the midst of being in total war, everything was against them. The police, the sanitation, they had no medical care. So the young lords tried to help out. I mean, it was just, it was just amazing. It was an amazing time currently doing a totally different project, but because the film is out now about this time period, I seem to be called for this one more. And um, I don't know, I hope it was informative. <laughs> okay, thank you. So I'm gonna maybe open with a question or two to try and um, to bridge the two wonderful presentations that we've had. Thank you both. Um, but I definitely want to leave time for audience questions as well. Um, so I'll, I'll look to Carla and Jordan to help guide that. But something that I, I think unites both of your projects are um, this making visible a community, whether that's a community of fellow photographers or the community that you shed light on through your camera. And I really um, like what you were telling us, Veronica, about feeling that there was a lack. And that's certainly, I think, what you were feeling when you experienced. Um, and the creative approaches that you had to, to filling that void. And I don't know if you want to speak a little bit further to, to start off on an idea like that. When I began Photo Feminist, I, I guess I was partly naive in, in the sense that I began responding to something that I felt it was lacking which was to find Latin American female photographers. But as time has gone by, actually, I started to see photo feminists differently. Um, even though I'm the creator, I'm, I'm, I'm actually seeing it differently today. I understood that what was the biggest problem, it was that we did not have a community. And that's why it was so hard to find other contemporary of my peers. And that wasn't something that I realized when I began. I mean, like I was saying today, we're over 50. We're all based in different countries, some in Latin America, the US, Europe, and two of us are in Asia. And I mean, we have a little group on Facebook. Most of them are in, in the group and we try to provide information, opportunities, collaboration. Some of them have partnered among each other. I'm sure, I mean, I cannot speak for them. There is one photo feminist in the audience if she wants to talk, <laughs> but I think we have learned from each other. I certainly have. I have learned from them and I think they have too. I mean, just looking at other people's work, uh, whether it might not be the same type of work that you're producing, but you learn. You learn just like, because we have similarities. I and I think it is, that's why I think it's so important to have unity, because it also kind of reaches your practice. I started so long ago, there's, there was no such thing as digital. Yeah. <laughs> so community really meant you're kind of looking for, you know, for like-minded people who are doing either photography or writing or painting. I did notice with time that my male colleagues would, would get hired easily and not too many women. I wasn't a journalist, so I didn't take it too personally, but, but I, I, I did find it that, you know, the male lens, when you go to places of difficulty like this, often focused on the fire and the destruction, and I found that women were trying to find more of the community, 
and the people, and not always. I mean, there's times we do both, but uh, but I felt like that that vision was just not there. You know, it was a shame, and it was hard to. It really was hard to search unless you traveled a lot and you, you know, like uh, part of my family's from Puerto Rico, so I met photographers from that first exhibition that you showed, Nine Women. A friend who wasn't, who was kind of self-taught, she found nine of us once. And I went, oh my God, where did you go find these people? I never heard of two female photographers, much less nine. And we were all Latina on top of that. And I'm like, this child will find anything. <laughs> like, so it, it was fantastic that there's people who that's what they're good at, you know, searching. But it still is, is, is a hard thing to do, you know, to find. And it's a shame. It's a shame that we don't have more even, you know, exhibitions of male and female and young and old. And because we, we see things, you know, somewhat differently. Our, our interest is different as we either age or as we travel. So it, I, I find it, you know, sad that so much of it, I have nothing against white men, but, you know, why is it always that it's them in the galleries and museums, you know? But I think something that's really great about this panel is that it is bridging um, multiple generations here today. And actually, I thought it was really interesting, Perla, when you were basically describing a pop-up and describing these DIY methods that is essentially what you're discovering through the Bibliomobil, through your library. Um, and I'm, I'm curious for both of you if you find that you're learning from each other. I feel like, Perla, you are doing a lot of digital now, yes. Well, and I wanted to talk to you both, too. Both of your work is, in a way, very curatorial. You, you mentioned that you've also served as a curator. I think your, your whole body of work is a curatorial um, mode. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about what, here I am as the, the curator at an institution, what do both of you want more curators to do to pay attention to? What are strategic things that we can provide for you and other um, young mid-career artists, women artists? I'm not sure, I'm not sure. It, well, I mean, self-reflectively. Um, I'd want to answer really intelligently well, maybe with you'll that, think but, of it. Yeah. I was looking, I mean, looking at how you have um, been presented at El Museo in the past, and you were in a bunch of exhibitions in the 1980s. I think in recent years, you were in Museum Starter Kit. Last year, you were in Down These Mean Streets, and you're in Culture and the People. But even so, for example, in Down These Mean Streets, which was an amazing exhibition dedicated to Latino photographers, you were the sole woman. So I'm wondering, how do you see that as changing? About the first question, how, how institutions can help. I mean, I think one thing I find very challenging is finding a space. I'm not saying a space for exhibitions, but a space like for this, for a dialogue uh, among photographers, projections, which is very cheap to do, but I think it creates a connection, and I think that's very important. There is a really great quote by a Venezuelan curator, Sofia Imber, once she said, give me a garage and I will make you a museum. And I totally feel like that. <laughs> so, you know, give me, give me space and I'll find something to do. So that, that would be my request. <laughs> Just, you know. Thank you. Thank you. This is very appreciated, yeah. I was thinking that sometimes even just asking the artists that you know, 
about other artists. Because some of us, I for some reason, because this has been a, a recent topic in a film and some other areas, I keep being requested to show this and I feel like I'm going to be known for one, one series and that was it. So if you ask other artists who are their favorite or their, who, who's inspired them, oftentimes you'll hear of people that you don't know about because we're not written about very easily. I, I definitely would say, yeah, your, your, other, your other artists. I think the question asked here of Veronica was, how do you decide which photographers get featured by Fotofeminas? Um, in res- I mean, in my very short experience, of course, but I do, you know, the selection on a monthly basis. And in I think it was 2017, I decided to select six, so half of a year, but the other half, I asked each of those six to invite one. And I, I was hoping that I would not know that other person, that I would not know that other photographer. And it was a very interesting you know, discovery for me because I was put in touch with photographers. Some of them, they didn't have a website, which that's fine by me. Of course, that helps when you're a researcher, but that was definitely, it opened up for me a new, a new option. I, I felt like I learned from A brief story of, I just remembered from, which I'm so appreciative of this uh, decolonize this place movement. Many years ago when I was curating, I curated maybe... I think a dozen years, but and and not very great pieces, but work that no one was seeing from outside the country. The Museum of Modern Art literally called me and asked for the names of all my photographers that I had accumulated for ten years, not being paid, working late at night, and no 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 easy research on the computer like nowadays. You know, it was it was calling and writing to people and and like just really tedious research to find all these photographers. And they just asked me for, for all, all the names. They didn't ask me to assist in anything or co-curate. I mean, I wasn't a known curator, so I, I understand that. But, but I felt it so disrespectful because I'm sure I'm not the only person, you know, um, that went through that. And, and, and I had the difficult decision to make, do I not give them the names? Or perhaps one of them could have exhibited there. Or do I give them the names and let them keep treating us like none of us can be curators and none of us are, you know, known artists and et cetera, et cetera. So that, that was something I had forgotten about, but that, that occurred to not, not just me. So I think that decolonize this place is, is fantastic. I think they have to make them conscious of that their history has been totally excluding other artists. Here, somebody asks Perla if she went ahead and shared those photographers with the Museum of Modern Art. No, I didn't. I didn't, and... I never told all the photographers about it, because... <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, if one of them was, like, close to being, you know, well-known, and I, and I said no, and I, it was, oh my God, that was a migraine. But this, that, that notion of respect and and acknowledgement of other people's work that's another thing that i think both of you touched on with your library which i think is a genius way of still getting that word out without 
being taking away from anybody and still allowing that system to happen. And you, Perla, mentioning about the music and again with this story. And um, I think it's curious that we, we find it amongst ourselves um, and it's not always reciprocated in a wider, in a wider range. Um, I want to ask one more question, then I really want to open it to the floor. But I'm curious, um, do either of you, we're looking at platforms, digital platforms, Instagram, um, traditional archives, and I'm curious, what what sources do you use? Do you use, um, like the Museum of Fine Arts Houston has the ICAA blog. Um, I know uh, there's a number of photographers and Nuevo Yorkinos, which is a Instagram tag that's also collecting and creating this archive. So do you have any others you could share with us? So when I began Photofeminist, there wasn't Instagram. So I had just been doing a lot of the research before from that interview series that I was just sharing the 10 questions with. So that actually helped me a lot to, to kind of like, yeah, begin Photofeminist. When I began, there wasn't many websites from, in terms of festivals in Latin America and photography. I mean, there is a Valparaíso in Chile. It's been running for many years. They didn't have much info uh, for women. There was, well, there is the Pedro Meyer Museum in Mexico City. I mean, there is more now, but when I began, there wasn't that much, actually. Um, so there was a lot either uh, in the library, ICP library, as I said, that helped me a lot. But then, of course, Instagram came, and for sure, that has helped to be found. So, you know, I get a lot of people uh, submitting their work, uh, and also, like... There are many of the photographers, they would suggest to their classmates or colleagues about photofeminists. So, for example, photofeminists is always an open submission. I don't run any themes, uh, as long as there is like a good body of work. So it varies nowadays. I go to as many exhibitions as I can, but I am so old school, I don't follow anything, I don't post anything which my friends are always telling me why, and I just, I don't have that kind of energy anymore. I uh, finished a book that I'm waiting to hear if it gets published soon. So I'm working on, on projects and then trying to support as many you know, colleagues as I can. I like to mentor young people. I stopped teaching and I kind of miss it, so this is nice to see young people again. But I mentor photographers when it, uh, whenever I get a chance. But I can't say I've, I do social media at all. They're opening it to the audience. Hi, thank you all for being here today again. My name is Jordan Cruz. So Perla, I have a question for you. So one of my biggest struggles in this program came from me trying to sort of insert my culture and who I am as a Puerto Rican woman into, into academia. Ooh, can you hear me now? Okay. And I spent a lot of time trying to sort of unpack the political struggles of Puerto Rico um, through my work, but I felt really lost having to constantly explain away a lot of these things. And since your work is so heavily political, um, I'm wondering, do you have any advice for emerging women photographers who feel lost in the causes that they're fighting for because there's such a lack of understanding? I remember what you were saying a little bit earlier about finding, uh, finding much about the past and one of the difficult parts is if you, if you don't have writers that you know that can work with your photography, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. I remember 
when I, when I curated in the early 80s or mid-80s, somewhere in there, all of the reviews of anything that came from Latin America or by Latin American folks living here, that their parents were from Latin America, all of the reviews, if there were any, was also always very negative. It's like Latin American photography is, is just documentary and it's just this and it's just that. And, and true, with, with situations with, with such difficult political um, situations in those countries, you're gonna see photographers do that a lot, but you have to look beyond that. There was a lot more than just there's war or there's some kind of strife, because we could have done that here. If we, if we go to black communities and, and Latino communities, and which we did in the past. And I think it's one of the reasons I became a photographer. And you only show a kid with a scar and he's a drug addict, and that's representative of Harlem where I grew up. No, Harlem had every conceivable nationality you can imagine. I went to grammar school with Chinese, German, Irish, you name it, every nationality there was. We were just working class poor. But we were community, and we all watched each other's kids, and we watched the elderly, and we went to the hospital as an interpreter for them. You know, it was not until crack epidemics and the redlining and all the awful policies that the city started to put in here that we really became very segregated. Of course, the very rich are always segregated, but in general, New York was not that segregated until the white flight of the 70s after this happened, which I'm only showing you a few blocks, that, which is why I recommended the film because it describes all the, you know, the whole city. But I, I would say, and I'm glad to give you some names, is uh, because I'm going to Puerto Rico on May 20th. I want to go into the mountains. No one is financing, not, New, not the U.S. nor Puerto Rico, is financing sustainable farming or energy projects. So people are installing solar and and doing farming that nobody's documenting because it's it's so it's either no news or bad news. And I'm like, why? Why is everything so negative? And and you know, I mean, if we did stories for me, television missed its whole mark. You know, if if television, okay, five minutes of news, and 95% of the time we were talking about how great every nationality and every community is, we would be going to each other's neighborhoods and going, let's party. You know, or you know, or they, or a certain neighborhood needs help. A lot of uh, those kids, the teenagers, who taught themselves how to do sweat equity, which is you build your own house, apartment buildings when they were burnt down. A lot of people came in when it, we started to spread the news, and this was all verbal because there was no, you know, you might have a, a home phone that you would pick up and call people, but this was all verbal. You would say, you know, some kids. The elderly people are doing gardens, let's help them on the weekend. And there's people, casitas, Martha Cooper, you look up her photography, wonderful woman. She did 100 photographs. I mean, she, she photographed 100 casitas. Casitas are little wooden shacks, little wooden houses that were replicas of what Caribbean homes looked like in the 40s and 50s, whether you were in Puerto Rico or Dominican Republic. They were about the same, a little yellow house, a little pink house, a little with a little balcony. Well, after the fires and all of this vacant rubble, they built all these little houses and then they would play music and teach the kids instrument. They would, on holidays, make big pigs and the whole community could eat. And none of those positive things were ever in the news. It was only about some kid, you know, set fire to a building, which, which is sad. So you have to find your own reporters, your own writers, 
you have to, yeah, it's the only thing I can, I can, I can tell you to do. And, and that doesn't mean it'll be easy because you still have to get someone to publish it, you know? And sadly, too many publications don't like, you know, nice stories. <laughs> um, I'm curious as to what you're working on now, Perla. It's, um, Time, so Sorry, the, that you've built um, my I have an Afro, Afro-descendant project started in Puerto Rico because in 2017 they first got hit with bankruptcy, then two major hurricanes. I had to stop because instead I was taking solar lights and I was cooking through the mountains with a lot of chefs that we were all volunteered. But I'm going to pick up uh, part of that again. Very few people know that the UN declared about three years ago this is the decade of, uh, for people of African descent where we should be in universities in many places. We should be doing things about the Afro-descendants. And sadly, we're not. So I was the official photographer for the opening of the lynching museum. I called them up and I said, I'm, I am amazed at your architecture. It literally made me cry and all I saw was a computer generated, this is what it's going to be. That's another 10-minute video that I have that slowly walks you through it in case you are not going to go to Alabama, <laughs> which I was amazed I was in Alabama. But I'm doing a lot of things related to the Afro-descendant because if women are excluded and people of color are excluded, the Afro presence even more so, and many Afro presence in Latin America, sadly, you know, colonialism is still here in many ways. Puerto Rico is a colony. And, you, you know, it doesn't matter that 400 years can go by or 300 years or whatever, 200 years, because most, most of the slave plantations in Puerto Rico were the 1800s, where my great-grandmother was born, and she raised me. So I, I'm not that far from slavery, even though I'm very light-skinned. I, I know a lot of the stories. And you... Because we're, I think we're the island that has the most range of color, we somehow mix the most with the native person, the native Tainos there, and the African and the Europeans. The Europeans from France, Italy, Spain, pretty much all of Europe were given free land during the abolition in Puerto Rico. Because if you have 30 to 50 slaves that are about to go free and you only have maybe 3,000 white people, they were scared. So they reached out to all of Europe and said, we will give you land if you come here, you accept the Catholic Church, and you accept Spain as your whatever. And, but interesting enough, all those people, they didn't stay that separate. So we come in many, many shades. But yet, I can be this shade, and your shade, and someone darker, and we're all sisters, and the person who's the darkest suffers the most, because they're not they're not seen as the beauty because we've bought this blonde, blue-eyed nonsense in, in whether it's uh, magazines or whatever. So I, I think that's one of the reasons. I always wanted to do a book on the beauty of the black person. And it feels strange because I'm not that I know of, of African descent, but it's very possible that I am. I keep wanting Donald Trump to take a DNA test, by the way. <laughs> Because I'm convinced there's very few of us that don't have a little inkling of something. So if he's native something, and there's native people, the native American all over, whether it was Latin America, Caribbean, or, or here, sadly, you know, they, they, we have some blood. 
And in African, we, we, we took every slave woman there was. So, you know, look how many presidents we had that had, that had children with slaves that they didn't really acknowledge. So he might have something back there, and I think that would be hilarious. <laughs> I want to ask a similar question to Veronica. What, what's the, you mentioned that you're looking for artists from Paraguay. Uh, what are other future projects that you're looking to work on, that you're working on now? Can we convince you to have some Puerto Rican and Latinx artists on Foto Feminas? Yeah, of course. I would love to have Puerto Rican artists, photographers. I continue with the features, but um, the newest project is La, La Biblia Mobile. We're going to go next month to Singapore, me and the library. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's going to be a photo book fair, and I'll be displaying the books, and I'll do, I guess, my performance. We're in the library, and, I mean, it would be great, of course, if I could take it, you know, to Latin America or even New York, it, it would be I mean, amazing. And always, you know, chasing for books to include to, to the library. I would say that at the moment, that's like my main goals. I would like to ask you too, how was the process of putting together this online platform, connecting all these Latin American and Caribbean women, and how is social media important for Photo Femina at this point? I mean, putting the website, I was like, I was familiar putting websites together. So I guess that was like, kind of like a natural process. Um, what it was important for me was that it would be very clear and the pictures could be seen big and that I could have freedom as well to, to feature the works because not all the works are featured exactly in the same way. I tried to sort of like be creative within the restrictions of the website. Sometimes it's multimedia, sometimes it's like many images, sometimes it's less, sometimes there is collage, depends, depends on the work. So I tried to sort of like mix it. I mean now social media is a big part because it has grown so much and um, like I said at the beginning there was no Instagram. It's been a great platform to find talent, but also to be found. There was also, for two years, I organized um, the Instagram takeover, which is basically for one week, one photographer would take over our account. They have absolutely full freedom. I, I would give them the login details, and then they could post one to 20 photos if they wanted per day, and that would be for six days. And it was with the hope, you know, that they could also be found. Like, Susanna was just asking me what sort of audience followers Photo Feminist has. Um, I mean, there is a lot of people from the US, Latin America, and now getting more from Asia. So definitely, you know, that's also, I think it's a good way for the photographers to promote their, their work. And I mean, with the library, when I display in the in the art book fairs, kind of like in a more traditional way. I, I have book for sales, um, if the photographers send me. And essentially, the goal of that is to help with distribution. Because one of the biggest um, challenges that the photographers have expressed with uh, self-publications or with their photo books is distribution. I mean, many of you would know, like, mail system in Latin America <laughs> a lot <laughs> so you know to 
to sell online is very difficult to get, you know, your work out there, your books out there for other audience, editors, curators, it makes it very challenging. So, um, so when I've been to South America, sometimes, you know, the photographers, they will give me five copies, 10 copies, depends. And then, you know, I've been fortunate to sell it for them in the fairs and it's in the hope that, you know, that they can be found and that, you know, that they can do more stuff. I mean, some of them, they've been able to go to Japan now, um, meet other editors and that's the idea. The idea is that it goes out, that it doesn't stay in their basement or room. I think that would be just such a shame. Yeah, social media, it is important, but it's not the only way, I think. I just wanted to ask, um, what is the best way to support female Latinx photographers if you're not a part of the community or you don't share that heritage? Go see the documentary. Because filmmakers often, it's that one week in New York, and there were quite a few photographers in there. I, I'm not the only one. I just happened to start the film. But, uh, yeah, no, going to some of the films and any exhibitions you can. Definitely El Museo del Barrio, whenever you can, you'll learn about artists there. Like, like Perla is saying, I think, you know, even, you know, attending this sort of conversation panel, it's already a massive help because it's understanding more about the background of the interest. And I don't think it's about purchasing... It's like I think it's starting a conversation and understanding the artist's interest. That's already a massive step forward, I think. I think, too, uh, I mean, I don't think Latinx artists want to only be collected or viewed or appreciated by only Latinx communities. And I should say that we're not the only marginalized community, and I think we can all be supporting one another and looking towards um, other other communities that might also be not always as visible, whether it's queer or POC or or other diasporas beyond uh, the, the Latino diaspora, so. Susana was just asking me before we started the panel, like what was the main traffic in the website? And actually the US has always been the main traffic in photo feminists. Second is Argentina, but, and, you know, it's, I think it's good. I think it's the good that it is not only Latin America that is coming from elsewhere, too. Thank you. I think it's good to ask the, whatever bookstores you go to that have photography books, is there a way they could have more variety in their work? Sometimes you don't see any women, or sometimes you don't see any people of color, or any, anything very different. You know, it's the same photographers. And I love the classic photographers the you know but you do want to see other things too it's, it's hard with publications because it's just hard for them financially to distribute but I think if enough people ask on occasion they might say oh there seems to be an interest here because you know I've had two people ask me in the last month or something that they carry it something else first it's um thank you very much there were some words on photojournalism. The negative is the only thing we see with that racism that 
is, is photojournalism. What are your thoughts is on re is on reforming that? I forget if it was the early '80s. There used to be uh, on television. Uh, there used to be programs that didn't really represent much the Latino community and the young lords and other activists in New York City. Puerto Ricans have sadly had to have a lot of activism happen over the decades. They constantly went to the different stations and said that they had to change their programming, whether it was that they put an actor who was the only thief or the only thug or the only whatever. I, I can't recall right now the programs because there were a lot of them over the years but there were times where they actually managed to get a TV show off the air. And that's very hard to do, you know. I mean, nowadays we have a zillion channels, but back then there were main, mainly three major networks. And they were very powerful. So for you to change something there, and it took being in front of ABC, sorry, being in front of ABC with a huge placard going, you know, ABC is racist or exclusionary or sexist or whatever it is that you wanted to complain about. And some communities never stop doing that. Um, some don't feel the need. But the young lady in the back who was saying how we could support, I think sometimes if we're fortunate enough to live in areas that are fairly comfortable, um, but you consider yourself an artist uh, or, or a young person who cares about things, go into these communities and look at their work and find out what they're uh, protesting. The Whitney's been getting decolonized this place endlessly. And join some of those things because you'll learn, I mean, you could, you could be out there 24-7, but after meeting a lot of people, you'll learn the one place or the two places that you think could use your presence could use your presence in saying, look, you know, I'm a professor, I'm a, I'm a photographer, I'm a mother, whatever it is that you want to represent, and this is not the type of media that you should, you should be putting out, okay? Or if you're a member of, of uh, dozens of organizations, and some professors are, we are telling every single one of these organizations to boycott ABC or to boycott the Daily News or to boycott whatever it is you felt was so offensive. Because we get lazy. It, it's, it's exhausting to be an activist all the time. But if we get lazy, then we're back to Trump. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's we need, you can't get lazy. You can't get, take, take a week off, go somewhere, <laughs> but come back and go, okay, I'm a New Yorker and I'm fighting for, for communities and I'm fighting for, you know, things not being so difficult as they become gentrified and people have to get out. You know, how do we, how do we help this? I don't know if that's an answer, but. <laughs> I mean, when I was presenting, I just realized I didn't fully elaborate. Like, when I move overseas, you know, I would come across a lot of, like, negative imagery from Latin America. And um, that was something that it caught my attention. And it, it, it is not something that I deny or, you know, we all had, in the region, had very rough, <laughs> you know, past. Uh, however, that's not the absolute truth, neither. And I think that's where I felt conflicted. 
um, that it was always like the body, you know, the gangster, the the kid, like the drug dealer, you know, the kid with the scar, all these things. It's just like, it's exhausting too, you know, to always see that. And I know it's not true. But then we are, we are audience, we are viewers, and I guess it's also our responsibility to ask for more or to search for other media, as Perla is saying. I think we also have certain responsibility. What do we buy? Why do we accept from the media? And I think that's also a way to change the journalism, or photojournalism specifically. You know, like we, we shouldn't be engaging in trash journalism. That's also a way. Maybe I have maybe a, a final question or thought, but I'm curious if um, you see photography or, or digital media as, as a media that you think might be able to more potently or more visibly enact some of this social change than, than other media as an artist. I mean, I see photography a very strong medium. I, I don't consider it a weak medium at all. I think if anything is becoming stronger, it's very accessible. Of course, some people take better pictures than others where the message becomes stronger, but it's a very democratic medium. I mean, anyone could report something that happens in the subway on their way to work or an assault, or, and that's super important. And of course, there is a lot of trash too, but I definitely think the medium is very strong, without a doubt. I think one of the reasons I don't deal a lot with um, social media is because I found there was so much that I didn't want to look at. Um, I don't want to look at your dinner plate. and <laughs> you know, I don't have the time anymore. And so it's, 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 it's good and bad. It allows anyone to become a reporter and a, a wonderful image maker. But my God, do you have to wade through millions of things to find the ones that are doing you know, good work? And, and so to me, I realize that something like Facebook really isn't about serious photography, so why am I judging it that way? So I said, so then I just don't partake in things like that, unless in the case of finding my relatives in Puerto Rico when we couldn't find anyone during the hurricane, I adored Facebook because we just went into chat rooms where, where people knew someone in a town, and we looked for our relatives. So I thought for that it was remarkable. But for images, I still prefer either newsletters and blogs or whatever that I look at that I see that they try and... Women photograph in the United States is, is women, and um, they're doing really great work. I had seen both of them, which I was so glad to see something in Latin America. So. I stick more with stuff that are a little more professional or, or people aspiring to be professional image makers because I think images, just like film, I'm a filmmaker on rare occasions, it, they're so strong. If you really tell a good story, it can absolutely change someone's um, perspective on things. Maybe with that, I want to thank the two artists, also Carla, Jordan, Liz, um, Charles, and SVA for, for hosting this talk. and and hopefully more dialogues and platforms for the future. So thank you all.